here we are, picking up our study. We're carrying on through the book of Acts here. And today our message is entitled, The Word Increased and Multiplied. And that comes from the, the 24th verse. So we're going to ultimately focus on the 24th verse. But before we do that, I want to, um, I want to look at the story we just read part of this story, but I want to look at it in a little bit more detail and look at five things in regard to the story. Then I want to look at five other points that are uh, applicational to the story. So, but as, as we pick up here in the narrative of Acts chapter 12, uh, the scene shifts briefly now back to Jerusalem. So maybe you remember uh, we've been We've been in Antioch. That's where much of the, the previous uh, stuff has been happening there, the, the church that's been established there in Antioch. So a lot of the ministry was revolving around that. So now we're just, as we follow the story, we're, we're temporarily back in Jerusalem here. And we see that the, the church in Jerusalem is once again under a severe attack. So uh, there's, there's been kind of a subsiding of the hostilities for a season after the early persecutions, after the persecution that was led by uh, Saul of Tarsus, who is now a, a believer and uh, an advocate of the gospel. Uh, there was a subsiding of the persecution, but all of a sudden, Everything flares up again, and the first thing that we see is that James, the brother of John, is put to death by Herod Agrippa I. So th this is obviously a, a massive blow to the early church. Remember, James was, was one of the three men who was in what you might call the inner circle with Jesus. Jesus had 12 apostles. We know one of them, Judas, was a, was a, a traitor. So, but we've got 11 minus Judas. But then you've got the three. And oftentimes in the gospels, you find that uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they are with him in a lot of these um, intimate ministry scenes. So, Here's one of the guys who's part of the inner circle, no doubt uh, a very significant figure in those early days of ministry. And suddenly he is just taken out by, by Herod. And then as we read, um, Peter is also arrested. And the intention of Herod is to put Peter to death after the, the Passover week. All of this happened during the Passover time. Uh, so Herod doesn't want to create too much of a stir. So he decides, I'm going to put Peter to death, but, but he's going to postpone it. And he does all of this because he sees that this is giving him a little more favor with the Jewish leadership. So the first thing we see is that the opposition uh, to the gospel has um, resurged and in a very uh, fierce way. Um, but the thing that we also see is that 
the church went to prayer. And really, this was the, the right thing to do. And in, in some ways, it was the only thing they could do. You know, they didn't have any political power. They couldn't pull any strings with any of the authorities. Uh, they were really, you know, subject to the situation. But they did the right thing. They turned to the Lord. They turned to the Lord in prayer. And um, no doubt, to some degree, the, the prayer contributed to what happens after this. And this is that Peter, uh, who on, on the very night before his execution, uh, Peter is visited by an angel and he is uh, delivered from the situation. So we have opposition to the gospel. We have earnest prayer on the part of the church. And then we have divine intervention. And that's where I want to pick up and just read a few verses to us. Um, beginning here in verse six. So when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chain fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garments and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So we see here God's intervention. Now, we don't, we don't know why uh, James was allowed to die. And, and Peter, who, again, you know, Herod intended to execute, uh, Peter was set free. Uh, they, again, as I said, they were both part of this inner circle with Jesus. You know, you would look at somebody like James and you would think, well, Lord, surely we need James around. Surely you should deliver James as well. We need James and Peter. But God allows James to die, but he sets Peter free. And why was that? We don't know. But in situations like this, we just have to recognize that, you know, God's plans are not... Um, always going to line up with the way we think things should go. And, and of course, for us, we generally tend to think that, you know, the best human outcome is going to be the best possible outcome for the bigger picture. But, but that's not necessarily true. God uses everything. And sometimes he uses even something like a, a, a fierce persecution that results in the, the deaths of God's servants he actually uses that 
for the greater purpose of the advancement of his kingdom. And of course, for the person who dies like James, uh, it's a benefit to James because James is now finished. He's finished the race. He, he's, he's now in glory with the Lord. Obviously, it's the people left on earth that are the ones who suffer the most. But, but God, God has his purposes. I've had uh, a couple of friends uh, go to be with the Lord, and it didn't make sense to me. Still doesn't make sense to me. I, I thought for sure that they were going to be healed. They needed to be healed because, Lord, surely we need them in the fight. We need them here and now. But apparently, uh, God didn't think so. God has another plan. So there's things in life that we have to recognize that, that sometimes we're not going to be able to figure it out. It's going to look one way to us, but we have to trust the Lord. Now, as I said, remember, uh, James is the brother of John. These are the sons of Zebedee. John outlives everybody. John, uh, as far as we know from the record, uh, John is the, the, the apostle who lives the longest. And maybe you remember in the gospel of John, there's a moment because Peter, although he's liberated from prison on this occasion, eventually Peter is also going to die a martyr's death. And Jesus told him that. He told him in advance. He said, when you were young, you went and did what you wanted to do. But when you get old, uh, you're going to stretch out your hands. They're going to lead you to a place that you do not want to go. And John says that Jesus spoke this concerning the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And Peter and John were together with Jesus when this uh, conversation took place. And when Jesus said this to Peter, you know what his response was? His response was, looking over to John, his response was, well, what about him? <laughs> Understandable response. It's the exact response I would give as well. <laughs> but Peter eventually is martyred. John lives on. John uh, is the one who receives the revelation. So all that to say, God... God is in control. And just like God intervened in Peter's situation, he certainly could have intervened with James as well. So we have to conclude that God has a plan that sometimes is different than what we think it should be, but it's the right plan. Now, divine intervention. What I want us to just grab hold of really quickly is that this is something that didn't just happen back then. One of the reasons why we're studying the book of Acts is because we see in the book of Acts, we see how you know, the gospel began, how it uh, progressed, how the church grew and expanded. And as we look at the story of the past, what we're also wanting to continue to remind ourselves of is it is the, the picture of, of what things are to be presently. So these are not just historical events that we would have no experience of. These are historical events that show us the possibilities for the church and the people of God all throughout the, the history. And so just as Peter 
is divinely delivered from this situation, we can also expect that there will be times of divine intervention and deliverance from God in our day. And, and I want to say this because, you know, um, we have a tendency sometimes to dismiss things that are actually supernatural. We're sometimes tempted and sometimes even encouraged by others to, to take things that, that really do seem to be supernatural, but try to kind of naturalize them. And, and then, you know, where on the one hand, if it was supernatural, we have a, a real clear sense that, man, God was at work. God did something. But then if we naturalize it, we just say, oh, well, I don't know if it was the Lord or not. It was just, you know, it just worked out this way. And, and there's a tendency, there's kind of two extremes. I mean, some people can, they see a miracle in everything, which isn't true. But then there's the other extreme where people are very reluctant to, to acknowledge or to recognize that God's going to work supernaturally. So we don't want to be crazy and just attribute anything and everything to the miraculous power of God. But at the same time, we don't want to be faithless and just reduce everything to the natural. And funny enough, in the story here, if you read some of the the commentators on the story, uh, there are commentators who want to naturalize this. Well, an angel probably was just, the word angel means messenger. This is probably a messenger. This is an inside job. This is somebody who was, you know, working on the inside. They came and, uh, you know, it wasn't really an angel like we think of an angel. It was just a, a messenger who came and was, you know, had the key and was able to get Peter out. Uh, that's what Herod thought. Herod thought that there was some sort of an inside job here. That's why in the end he has the soldiers executed because they, they let him, they let Peter get away. But when you read the story, that's not, it's not an inside job. It's not a, a mere man who's doing this. It, this is a supernatural thing. The chains automatically fall off Peter's wrist and ankles. And the two guards that he's sleeping between, uh, they don't wake up when the angel awakens Peter and raises him up. And when they come to, they're probably in the, what's known as the Antonia Fortress, which would be the, the, the barracks and it would include a prison. Uh, but then the door opens out into the city. But it says that it opened of its own accord, meaning that it wasn't opened by a person who had the key. So all, all of that just to remind us that, that God does do things supernaturally. And we need to recognize that even today. So uh, a young lady today said to me after the service, she said, um, and she went and got baptized this morning. And after the baptism, she said, she said, you know, there was a situation a while back and I knew it was the Lord and I knew it was like a divine intervention, but then I had this strong temptation to just sort of naturalize it. And, and I, and she said, and I kind of did that. And in naturalizing it, I kind of dismissed the, um, you know, the fact that God was doing something through it. And she said, your message this morning really convicted me uh, that I needed to recognize that, no, that was the Lord. So when things happen in your life or things happen in my life that you look at and you see, it just seems like God's hands here. Don't, don't just dismiss that as, well, it was probably just a coincidence. 
No, believe that God is at work. Believe that it was the Lord who did that and, and thank him for it and expect him to do those kinds of things because he does do those kinds of things. So we see that Peter is delivered uh, as we go through the rest of the account here. Peter, um, once he's released, he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, Mark, and there everybody's gathered together praying for him. He knocks on the door and uh, this young woman, Rhoda, she comes to the door. Uh, Peter says, it's me, it's Peter. And she's so excited, she doesn't even open the door. She runs back into the room where everybody's praying and says, hey, Peter's at the door. And you know what they say? You're crazy. Peter's not at the door. Peter's dead. That's probably just his spirit. So it, we talked about prayer, the importance of prayer earlier. These guys didn't even believe what they were praying for was going to be answered. <laughs> and God still answered it. So, you know, even sometimes we're praying and we don't necessarily believe it. But you know what? God's going to do what he's going to do. So... Finally, the, um, as the story finally unfolds here, the end of the story is that of um, Herod being struck down and killed by God, and we see the divine retribution. So, so the chapter starts very bleakly with Herod putting to death James and imprisoning Peter, it ends with Herod dying because God strikes him down at a particular moment. And then it says, but the word of God grew or increased and multiplied. So the intention uh, in the beginning uh, from Herod, who no doubt is being manipulated by Satan, is to stop the progress of the gospel. And what a better way to do it? Kill the apostles, get rid of these leaders, and we'll stop the advance of the gospel. But in the end, the, the, the forces that came against the gospel are stopped, and the gospel keeps going forward. Just really quickly, um, Herod here is, uh, there, there's many people in scripture that are Herod, right? There's way back at the birth of Jesus, you have Herod who was known as Herod the Great, and then during the ministry of Jesus, there's another Herod. Uh, this is Herod Antipas. Now, this is another Herod, and he is Herod Agrippa I. And he is the grandson, one of the grandsons, of the first Herod, Herod the Great. Um, so his, father, his grandfather was Herod the Great, but his, his grandmother was actually a Jewish princess, there was a, uh, a dynasty known as the Hasmonean dynasty. They were the priest kings of uh, Judea, and Herod was uh, connected to them as well. So, so this guy, Herod Agrippa I, he would have had um, some favor with the Jewish leadership simply because he had Jewish blood in him. But he was also greatly favored by the Romans, and he is the king over Judea. So since his, his grandfather Herod died in approximately 6 AD, there, there was no other single ruler over the entire land until Herod Agrippa I came to power. I think it was Claudius Caesar who put him uh, in, in the place. So prior to that, Pontius Pilate, for example, was the, 
the ultimate ruler in the region in Judea, uh, serving under Caesar. Uh, but, but Agrippa is made the king over the area. Now it says here in the story that the people of Tyre and Sidon, uh, Herod was angry with them. And so they came to him with one accord and they made this man Blastus, the king's personal aide. They made him their friend and they came and they sought peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So, so Luke paints a scene for us here. And he says, so on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. And then Luke says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Now, just hold on for a second here. And I, I'm making this point because, you know, people often criticize the Bible. People say, well, you know, the Bible is just full of myths and legends and there's no historical validity to it. You know, there's a Jewish historian named Josephus who wrote about uh, the wars of the Jews and the destruction of Jerusalem. He lived after the time of Jesus. He lived uh, around this time. And he wrote about this very incident. And it is almost identical to what Luke wrote, except uh, Josephus gives a little more detail. And so it says that he was arrayed in royal apparel. And what Josephus tells us is that Herod was wearing a garment that was embedded with silver. And he was there probably on, on the platform at Caesarea at that large theater there that is still there today. And as the sun was uh, coming up in the morning, the, the sun shone on that silver and illuminated Herod so he looked like some sort of a deity. And the people started shouting that he was a god. And as he took that praise, now Josephus doesn't tell us uh, an angel struck him down, but Josephus does say that he was suddenly smitten right there during this uh, you know, event that he's involved in, he, he was smitten. And then five days later, he died. Luke tells us that it was actually God who struck him down. So it's just an interesting uh, connection between Josephus and Luke. And uh, Luke is a first-rate historian. And we see that the stories are almost identical. So that's the story. That's the 12th chapter. But the thing that I want to really focus in on is, again, verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. The word of God advanced. Now, one of the chief objectives of the church is to see the word of God increase and multiply. That's what the church is all about. And whenever the church forgets that, loses sight of that, no longer believes that to be the case, you know what? The church just becomes absolutely useless, ineffective, and oftentimes even counterproductive in a culture. So we have to do everything we can to hold fast to uh, the truth of God, because it's through the word of God that God does his work. God's word saves the sinner and sanctifies the saint. Without the preaching of God's word, people aren't going to get saved. And without the teaching of God's word, people are not going to grow in their faith. 
And Paul, in writing to Timothy later, he would refer to the church as the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So a pillar is something that holds something up, and a buttress is something that uh, was a defense. It was used as a defense. So it's a picture that Paul's painting for us that the church is to hold up the word of God so that all can see it, and the church is also to defend the word of God. And whenever the church doesn't do that, like I said, you have um, an unfortunate situation on your hands. So we are to believe God's word. We are to proclaim it. We are to defend it. And if need be, as we see in the lives of these men, uh, we need to give our lives for the cause of the gospel if that's what it comes down to. Uh, The opposition is persistent. Nothing's changed in history. There's always opposition to God's word, just like there was from the very beginning. There's opposition to God's word today. And at times it is fierce, but we are the ones in our generation that God has called to take his word to the world. That's, that's our mission. That's what we're to do. So this is what I wanna do now. I want to, I wanna look at five things really quickly that every one of us need to be engaged in. Because listen, where, where, whenever or however it happened that people thought that you just come to church once a week and you, know, you kind of do your duty and then that's the extent of it, however that mentality developed, uh, know this, that's the wrong mentality. That's not the biblical picture of what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is about us, each generation of Christians doing everything we can to see the advancement of the gospel. And let me tell you, I probably don't need to tell you, but let me remind you, we are in desperate, desperate need for God's word to impact the world today, to impact our culture today. Now, um, I just returned from London last night. I left on Monday, um, a young lady that uh, was six months old when uh, her parents came to our church and her dad went on to become a pastor of one of the churches in London. Um, She was married. She asked me to do the wedding. I went over and happily did the wedding for her. But, But while I was there, I spent time with four or five different pastors, friends of mine, and we're, you know, talking about the ministry and what's going on. And um, the reason I'm bringing this up is because when you go to a place like London, you have 10 million people. Everything's very much uh, exaggerated. It, it's, it's a concentration of sin. You just see the need so much more clearly. Plus, you're in a situation where you don't have the kinds of things that we have, like Uh, many, many churches in the area. You know, we have so many great churches in Orange County, don't we? So many um, that believe the Bible, that preach God's word. You know, let me tell you, in the United Kingdom, in Europe, across the channel there, uh, churches like what we are uh, accustomed to and familiar with and expect, uh, they are few and far between. They hardly even exist it's, it's very difficult to find them. I was talking to a friend this week uh, who is a theological student, and they were telling me that uh, none of their, none of their uh, peers or most of their professors, none of them really believe that in the creation account in Scripture. None of them believe that there is a literal hell. Um, 
Most of them have never shared their faith or led anyone to Christ. And these are people who are training for future leadership in the church. And you hear that stuff and you're just thinking, Lord, help, have mercy on us. Do something. And so it just, having had that experience once again this week, it just reminded me of how um, intentional we need to be in our day to recognize that we are on a mission. That's what we're doing here in the world. We're, we're on a mission. We're not here to uh, settle down and get comfortable and live happily ever after. That, that's not what we're here to do. We are on a, a mission to advance the word of God. And every one of us have a, a role to play in that. Uh, a, a young girl who was here this morning, uh, a, a mission team from Seattle, passing through, they're on their way to Mexico. They came this morning and they were here at the church. And as we finished up, she walked out, she had tears in her eyes and she said, I, I just feel like God's calling me to be involved in planting a church. Would you pray for me? And of course I prayed for her. And I thought, yes, Lord, that's great. And she's got the right idea that God's calling us to do the work of the kingdom. So here are five things. I'll go through them fairly quickly here. But it starts with this. We need to pray faithfully. We need to pray faithfully. And here we see that, that they went to prayer. Now, we already mentioned the fact that they didn't have a ton of faith, obviously, because when Peter was delivered, they were surprised. But they knew what to do. They, they looked at the situation. It was dire. It was deadly. It was impossible. And they knew we've got to pray. And you know, that's what we must do as well. As we look at the, the situation around us, it's dire. It's crazy where the world is today. And, you know, there used to be places of sanity that you could kind of escape the madness. And you, you could look over somewhere else and go, oh, yeah, the, those people are crazy over there. But we're, we're doing great here. Well, you know, there aren't many places like that that you can find today. It's, it's a mad, mad, mad world. And the only solution is a work of God's spirit. And one of the ways that is going to happen is through God's people praying, just like they did for divine intervention. That's what they were praying for. God, save Peter, get him out of this situation. And he did. And so as we look at our world, God save people. So praying faithfully, committing ourselves to praying faithfully. Secondly, supporting sacrificially. Now, in the bigger context of the story here, you know, this is set between uh, Saul and, or Barnabas and Saul leaving Antioch to go to Jerusalem with a financial gift to help the Jerusalem church. And the story ends, verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. They also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So this story is sandwiched between this uh, journey by Barnabas and Saul, but it was a journey to assist the church in Jerusalem financially. And there was sacrifice that was made in order for that to be done. And listen, ministry 
it cost money. It cost to plant a church. It cost to do an outreach. It cost to disciple. Uh, all of those things have a cost. God has designed things that through his people sacrificially giving, the work of the ministry is going to advance. But I want you to think about the word sacrificially because that's what we're doing. We are giving up things that we might normally hang on to and even want to hang on to, but we're giving up those things. We're giving up those finances because we believe in the work of God. And we understand that this is how the word of God advances. And so we give. Not everybody is a person who goes and does the work. Some people send others to go and do the work. So again, after service this morning, there was a guy, and I know this guy and his wife, and they were waiting for me patiently. And when I finished up talking to somebody, they said, hey, we want to do something. We want to do, you're talking about that. Our hearts are burning for that. Uh, we can't go anywhere, but you know, we've got some money. We want to give to some kind of a work like what you're talking about to, to spread God's word. And I said, great, praise the Lord. I know a bunch of different projects that we could talk about and pray about, but this is what we need to do. We need to support the work of God, and we do that by sacrificial giving. Thirdly, we need to prepare ourselves, and we need to be diligent about it. Preparing ourselves, meaning that since the, the goal is the um, advancement of the word of God, and when it says the word of God grew or it increased and multiplied, what that means is that the influence of God's word was greater and greater over people's lives. Now, the way people get influenced through God's word is by people who have been influenced by God's word. So for us who have come under the influence of God's word, we don't want to settle with just a, um, a surface kind of an understanding of God's word. No, we want to we want to go and, and dig in deep and we want to know what the scripture says because this is what changes lives. This is what brings about new life. This is what heals families and, and restores broken relationships and puts communities back together. It's the word of God that does that. And we are the instruments that God wants to use so we must prepare ourselves diligently. Paul, again, later writing to Timothy, a young man, he said, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, one who can rightly divide the word of truth. He says to Timothy, be diligent. Put forth strong effort in preparing yourself for the things that God wants to do. We, that means that we have to shut out certain distractions. That means that we have to say no to some things so we can have the, those opportunities to build ourselves up in our faith. And we have many opportunities to do that. We have many ways to do that. But all of those things mean nothing unless we actually 
engage it ourselves. And so that brings me to point number four, and that is we are to engage wholeheartedly. We are not to go about our Christian lives half-heartedly. I mean, if there's anything that the scripture emphasizes, it's, it's with our whole heart. The 119th Psalm, David wrote that Psalm. It's the longest Psalm. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And so many times in that Psalm, David makes reference to a whole heart. Lord, help me to seek you with, with a whole heart. Help me, Lord, to observe your word with all of my heart. And he just goes on and on with that. But that's the way we are to approach our preparation and our involvement in ministry with a whole heart, giving ourselves entirely to the advancement of God's kingdom. That's, that's why we're here. That's the purpose of the church. And all of the other stuff we do is incidental. It really is. You know, our, our jobs, our careers, those kinds of things, uh, they're things that we do and they're wonderful things and they're things that God calls us to do. But our ultimate objective and goal is to advance God's kingdom. And so we are to give ourselves wholeheartedly to that. And then fifthly, we need to step out confidently. We need to take steps of faith. And one of the things that kind of troubles me today is that it just seems that there is um, a reluctance on the part of people to, to take steps of faith, or there's, uh, there's not really a desire to put oneself at risk and just say, you know, I, I'm going to trust the Lord for this. But unless we do that, nothing will change. Nothing, nothing's going to happen. We have to take steps of faith. I have to admit, sometimes I, I look at people and I know they're, they're gifted, they're able, I know God could use them, and I think of places that they could go, and then, you know, as we talk about it, they just, well, I don't know, you know, I just don't know if I'm ready yet, or man, you know, things are so good here, I just love it so much, and, and I think, wow, you're, you're just ripping yourself and, and other people off, because God wants to do so much more. So we have to step out and have confidence that God is with us. God's going to call us to do things, and he's going to equip us to do them. He's going to enable us so we can have the confidence that since God called me, God is going to do this. I was talking to a friend yesterday, and we're talking about... Um, you know, just the idea is, you know, some people are in a kind of just a continual state of preparation, and yet they never, apparently they never really get prepared because they're never really ready to take the step and go do what they've been pre getting prepared for. And as we were talking, it just came up, um, you know, I remember when I was young and I went out to pastor a church at the age of 26, and people uh, asked me then, and people will ask me now, and looking back on that, were you ready to do that at that point? And the answer is, well, no, I wasn't ready, but apparently God was ready for me to go do it. So it, I, I, could have, I could have thought of a hundred different things that I could have uh, grown more in or learned 
this better or, you know, I, there was always um, areas that I could improve in and uh, I could, you know, was I ready? No, I wasn't ready, but God was ready. He said, go. And so we can sit around waiting to get ready and miss the boat. We have to take a step of faith. We have to step out. And every one of us have areas where God's going to call us to steps of faith. Because guess what? The just shall live by faith. This is, this is our life. It's not just the life of a missionary or the life of a pastor or, you know, somebody. It's the life of a Christian. It's a life of faith. It's a life of trusting God. It's a life of taking steps. It, it, and you know what faith is? Faith is when you don't see the means or you, it doesn't make sense. It just seems like this can't possibly be because I'm so inadequate. But nevertheless, the the, the conviction, the sense that God is pushing you in a direction is, is strong, that you just say, okay, Lord, I'm just going to do it. That's what faith is. And a lot of times people are, they're waiting for too much. They're expecting more than God's going to give. God's given enough information. He's saying, okay, you got to act now. I always think of Abraham. God calls him, get out of your country and away from your family to a place that I will show you. God doesn't show him first. God shows him after he takes the first steps. See, sometimes it's very ambiguous. It's, it's vague. It's, I, I don't really know. But you just have this conviction. And you're not going to know until you move on the conviction that you have. And then when you take the step, then the next step will become clearer. But you see, some people are sitting around waiting. They, they want the whole picture. Lord, just spell it out for me. Lord, just put all the money in my bank account so I, you know, it's, it's all going to be fine. And then I'll get out there and do it for you. You know what? It doesn't work that way. That is not what the life of faith looks like. So we are to step out and, again, confidently because if God is calling us, then we can be sure that he will be faithful to enable us to do what he is calling us to do. Now, in closing, I just, I just want to bring it back around. Um, the chapter begins, again, with, with the opposition and with Herod. And yet we're reminded through this story that kings and kingdoms rise and fall Powerful evil men come and they go, but the word of God will continue to increase and multiply. You know, if you want to just think for a moment about all of the dictators, all the tyrants, all of the uh, oppressive people that have come and gone, and there will be more that will come, but they will go as well. But what will not change is God's eternal plan and purpose to establish the kingdom of his son over the entire universe. That's what we're part of. That's what we're engaged in. And so we look at those forces that might be against us. We look at those obstacles and we realize that, well, yes, they're real and they're threatening 
and they're potentially harmful, but we're serving the living God who divinely intervenes in the lives of his people to accomplish his ultimate goal and purpose. So let's be who we're supposed to be in our time. This, this is our time. We're, we're, this is our generation. We're, we're here to make a difference for the kingdom of God. We're here to see the word of God increase and multiply. And that's going to happen when we pray faithfully, support sacrificially, prepare diligently, engage wholeheartedly, and step out confidently. So Lord, we thank you again for the stories that we have here in your word, and particularly as we make our way through the book of Acts. And Lord, as we look at these historical accounts, these real events that happened, and we see in them, we see you are at work, and we realize that what you did then in that generation through those people, those are the same kinds of things that you are doing and want to do in our generation with us. And so, Lord, may we be men and women who take these things to heart, Lord, that we might see in our time your word increase and multiply right here in our immediate surroundings and all the way out to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.